has just recently gotten engaged and he's going to be married. And we're extraordinarily happy for you. Congratulations. In anticipation of that time when we can roam the aisles freely and pass the peace in ways that allow us to share space with one another. I'd like to invite you to stand right now and to look around and to share signs of peace with those gathered here. You may be seated. Now, a reading from the Gospel according to St. Mark. And the crowd came together again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, He has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of the demon, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? The kingdom is divided against itself. That kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. And then, indeed, the house can be plundered. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. In Ann Tyler's book, Saint Maybe, <laughs> she paints the portrait of a young man named Ian Bedlow. Ian early on in the book, spitefully tells his older brother one night that 
his older brother's new wife is having an affair. The older brother hears the news, and of course he's crestfallen, defeated. He turns around and he walks out the door. He gets into his car and he drives away. Later that night, Ian discovers that his brother has run into an abutment and has been killed. Ian's horrified to think that his own insensitivity caused his brother to kill himself. And also weighing heavy on his mind is the fact that his pregnant sister-in-law, of whom he is actually very fond, will be left to raise her two children as well as Ian's brother's baby-to-be alone. Three kids, two of which are Ian's brother's stepchildren. And Ian's racked by guilt. So in an attempt to escape the shame he feels and get on with his own life, Ian just heads off to college. But during the first semester, his sister-in-law dies of an overdose of sleeping pills. And now there are three orphaned children, and two of the children aren't even related to the Bedlow family, except by marriage. And the guilt just sort of continues to pile up. On his first Christmas break back from college, as Ian is wandering the streets trying to make sense of his life and the shame that he feels, he happens past this storefront church with a yellow neon sign in the front window, and it says, Church of the Second Chance. And intrigued, he goes inside, and the sermon is about how God wants to forgive people. Ian feels the presence of God in this dingy little storefront church, and there's something in the words that moves him. So the pastor sort of rushes up to Ian after the service, And seeing that something's troubling him, the pastor asks what the matter is. And he tells the pastor his painful story and then tells him that he would very much like to experience forgiveness himself, but that he's afraid he never will. The pastor tells Ian that, quite to the contrary, he is forgiven and now his life is remade. And curious, Ian asks what that means exactly. And the pastor, just met the guy, replies, that's simple. You must now raise your brother's children. And even though no one can believe it, perhaps least of all himself, that is exactly what he does. 18, a freshman in college, Ian Bedlow drops everything to go back home and raise his dead brother's children. Nurtured by the people, the good people in the church of the second chance, Ian sort of becomes attuned to the logic of faith that most other people just don't understand. When he explains to his parents, they sort of react in disbelief, and they say, Ian, have you fallen into the hands of some sect? No, I haven't, he answered. I merely discovered a church that makes sense to me, the same as Dober Street Presbyterian makes sense to you and Mom. Well, Dober Street didn't ask us to abandon our educations, his mother told him. 
course, we have nothing against religion. We raised all of you children to be Christians, but our church never asked us to abandon our way of life. And Ian said, well, maybe it should have. Did you ever get that feeling that the people you care about don't appreciate the choices that you've made in your life? I used to be fairly well-liked by the people I grew up with until Facebook came along. (laughs) It turns out a lot of those people uh, and I are no longer sort of in sync. Most of my friends have drifted away. Many have unfriended me, hoping, I think, to let me know that they really don't want anything much more to do with me. And I can just sort of imagine the conversations in my absence. I mean, I don't get it. He was such a nice boy. You know, after we we made the decision about no longer signing marriage licenses here until marriage equality was available to everybody, one of my former seminary professors started trolling me online. After he graduated with his PhD at Notre Dame, He got hired by the seminary, and I was his first thesis student. We were friends. We played flag football together. We drank beer together. But something happened, and I became a project for him. Someone he needed to sort of steer in the right direction. And at first, I mean, I tried to be nice about it, assuming that if I could just sort of sit down and talk to him, that we could figure it out. Well, eventually, after the Sandy Hook shooting, when I'd written a prayer uh, decrying the senselessness of gun violence, he got on Facebook and told me that I probably ought to just shut up. Well, at that point, I I figured I'd tried hard enough to figure out a workable relationship with somebody I obviously disagreed on some substantive issues with, but it appeared to be there was no way for us to bridge that chasm so I blocked him. <laughs> but anything like that ever happened to you? People you love, people who love you, come to the conclusion that you've made some pretty bad choices in your life. I mean, somewhere along the line, you steered your Hummer into the ditch, and they're pretty sure it's their job to rescue you and put you back on the right path. You didn't ask for their help, and you don't especially want it, but I mean, there they are, having convinced themselves that what you need is to be saved from your own shabby thinking and neglected morals. Does that sound familiar? Well, that's the dynamic Jesus is up against in our text this morning. I mean, starting way back in chapter 2, after having recently been baptized, having undergone the temptations out in the wilderness and kicking off his ministry in his native Galilee, Jesus scandalized the local religious gentry. He healed a paralytic after having forgiven the man. Well, just who does this Jesus think he is anyway? I mean, forgiveness comes from God, and we're the only ones who have the keys to that particular cupboard. So next, after calling Levi the tax collector to be his disciple, Jesus eats supper at Levi's house with a whole bunch of other tax collectors and sinners. 
Now, it's important to stop at this point and observe that to first century Jews, even saying tax collectors and sinners is redundant. <laughs> right? Once you've said the former, everybody already knows that you're talking about the latter. Tax collectors were the collaborating hooligans who did the bidding of the Romans and the temple elite by sort of scraping the last little bit of ice cream off the bottom of the carton of peasants' livelihoods. And if that weren't bad enough, the tax collectors got rich off the whole arrangement. And so by this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has infuriated the religious authorities and annoyed the peasants with whom he'd grown up. But you see, that's not enough. Because Mark tells us that Jesus got into it again with the religious big wheels by not requiring his disciples to fast. And then further announcing that the Sabbath is important, but that human beings are more important. God created the Sabbath to protect humans from overzealous employers who might work the peasants to death without having a day off. The Sabbath wasn't created by God just to give people more rules to follow. Well, Jesus compounds the trouble by entering the synagogue and proceeding to heal another man, this time with a withered hand, and once again, he does it on the Sabbath. Now, according to the folks on the ground, Jesus apparently doesn't have it in him to make good choices. So then, after appointing the 12 disciples, his family, in our text for this morning, goes out to restrain him, because the word on the street is that their boy Jesus has lost his mind. I mean, they know that not only is he stirring up the waters, but he's potentially putting himself and his friends and family in danger. You can hear the conversations around the kitchen table. I mean, they look across at each other and say, I don't know what happened to him. He was such a nice boy. After all the uproar, Jesus is finally approached in our text by the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. In other words, the Galilean religious honchos loyal to the temple have dropped dime to the religious suits in Jerusalem who've come all the way to see for themselves just what this Jesus nonconformist is up to, trying to decide for themselves whether or not he poses a threat. But that raises the question, why, why would Jesus, tucked way back in the sticks out in Galilee, pose a threat to the religious officials down in metropolitan Jerusalem? I mean, why do they care about some yokel from from, from, from out there, who says outrageous stuff and hangs out with all the wrong people. Well, for one thing, back when Jesus heals the paralytic man, he has this sort of odd exchange with the local scribes, where before healing the paralyzed man, Jesus tells him, your sins are forgiven. The scribes are outraged. What's this guy talking about? It's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. But you see, what makes the religious folks so purple-faced isn't that Jesus presumes to do what only God can do. They're furious because the system through which God offers forgiveness is by sacrifices mediated by the religious machine down at the temple. 
That is to say, claiming the power to be able to forgive sins is a bypassing of the system. It's a direct challenge to God's self-righteous go-betweens in Jerusalem. I mean, you know, if just anybody can come along and claim to be able to do their jobs for them, the power of the religious apparatus just starts leaking away. But it's not only the religious power they fear losing, it's the political power conferred on them as Rome's imperial sheriffs. Moreover, Jesus keeps hacking away at the underpinnings of temple power by undermining the rules that the imperial sheriffs use to keep order. You can't just eat with tax collectors and sinners. Everybody knows that. The important lines get blurred. Pretty soon there's no hierarchy to keep people in their place, which is a bad thing because the temple elites depend on that hierarchy to establish their authority. An authority that keeps them on, at the top of the food chain. I mean, you start monkeying around with that, and you know what can happen. You know what you have on your hands, right? Lawlessness and anarchy. The very thing that Rome, as spread thin as the empire is, fears more than anything else. I mean, and you can see how it happens. First, Jesus is claiming to be able to forgive sins. He's eaten with unsavories. Next thing you know, he seems indifferent to the Sabbath, you know, one of the Ten Commandments. And we all know that that's just a slippery slope to enemy and chaos, which everybody understands will give the Romans very severe indigestion. And nobody wants that. So far then, we know that Jesus' family is afraid he's going to bring shame down on them, and perhaps more importantly, the wrath of the religious hall monitors from the temple. And the folks at the temple are afraid that left unchecked, Jesus is going to bring down the wrath of their Roman overlords on their heads. So in order to impress the gravity of the situation on the local folks listening in who might be tempted to throw in with this troublemaker, the Jerusalem scribes accused Jesus of being in league with the devil. Which accusation is tough for Jesus to tone down, right? I mean, if you're possessed by a demon, there's no way to sort of moderate your behavior. The only options are pretty radical. Exorcism, exile, or extermination. That's pretty good, right? I mean, it did take homiletics in seminary. So. In other words, the path Jesus is on leads nowhere that anyone would be tempted to follow. So he better shape up quick, or he's going to face powerful people who will, in the memorable words of Tom Berenger in the movie Platoon, take a personal interest in seeing him suffer. But isn't that the end result, or at least the threat posed when your faith starts making people nervous? When you start breaking religious and social norms, hanging out with the wrong people, ignoring tradition, pretty soon the people who love you may start coming to you telling you that you lost your mind. And the people who don't love you start threatening you with dire consequences for upsetting the social apple cart. 
mean, you can't be nice to those people. Heck, you shouldn't even be seen with them. What is wrong with you? I mean, you used to be such a nice kid. Hospitality, which sounds so innocuous and nice when you're talking about bringing some chocolate chip cookies to your new neighbor, can get really nettlesome when you start offering cookies to the wrong people. Nelson Mandela emerged from a white South African prison after 27 years as a political prisoner and a political force. He busted rocks in a limestone quarry for the crime of being a black man who did not know his place. But on April 27, 1994, the unthinkable happened. A black man was elected president of South Africa. After a lifetime of virtual powerlessness, and after 27 years of absolute powerlessness, Nelson Mandela became the most powerful man in a country that had previously beaten him down and threatened to destroy his faith by continually telling him that he was less than a man, a non-entity to be treated any way his white overlord saw fit. But Nelson Mandela persevered. And at his inauguration, people were shocked to find that he had made the guest of honor the white jailer who had imprisoned him. In the aftermath of the first Rodney King verdict in the riots, Reginald Denny was dragged from his truck and viciously beaten by a raging gang. It was all on national TV. After his painful recovery, he met face to face with his attackers and he shook hands with them and he said he forgave them. And a reporter commenting on the scene wrote, it is said that Mr. Denny is suffering from brain damage. See, for too many people in our culture, being Christian means obsessing about what average people do with their genitals while ignoring what wealthy people do with their checkbooks. It means embracing people who say Merry Christmas while ignoring babies born into squalor and poverty. Christianity for too many people today means saving souls for Jesus while often despising those same souls until they have the decency and good sense to become more like you. As you start living like Jesus, challenging the powerful, the wealthy, hanging out with people who've been forced to live in the shadows to avoid being trampled by the religious folks who otherwise have contempt for them, and the wrath of the self-righteous will fall on you like Bull Connor's billy club. See, according to Jesus, God loves and welcomes all the people so many Christians publicly disparage or privately ignore. Muslims, LGBTQ people, immigrants, addicts, the disabled, the impoverished, the mentally ill, the houseless, But if God loves and welcomes them, then those who want to live like Jesus must also. So watch out. 
When your faith makes people nervous, it can cost you everything. Your reputation, your job, the approval of society, the love and embrace of your family, it might even cost you your life. But our church never asked us to abandon our entire way of life. Well, maybe it should have. Just ask Jesus. And then again, that might just be the thing that saves the world. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.